Hey, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and this is Heroes in Our Midst. Thank you so much for listening. This is our second last episode to what we're calling our season one. Our final episode will be a look back and wrap up with none other than Ace Burpee, and we're super excited about that. But today's episode is our final story for the season. As the host of this podcast series, it's been such an honor to be trusted with sharing so many incredible stories, and no question, every single story I have heard has inspired me and taught me that the most important thing behind every performance is the human. So to now tell my own story is an interesting task. Honestly, it's something I've done a ton of since I retired from the sport of volleyball. You know, after representing Canada at the 1996 Olympics, it somehow seemed to be something people wanted to hear. So since my co-founding friends, Dr. Adrian Leslie Tugood and Donna Harris have each already shared their stories, I suppose it's time to share mine. And I hope that after you hear it, you'll know where my passion comes from for the journey, not just the destination. You'll know how I had to pour everything I had into every step of the way or it wouldn't have been enough. And I hope you'll know to always remember that to be the very best you can be, you have to bring your whole self to the table. And in that quest, things can get pretty emotional and pretty interesting. Adrian plays host this time around. So here we go. Heroes in Our Midst. It's a podcast series that's created by three unbelievable women, one of which is Michelle Sawatsky Coop. And Michelle's a, someone I consider a very dear friend and uh, someone that I, I love a lot because she's such an amazing human being. She really is. And she's someone that um, whenever I see her, I know my day is going to get a little bit better because she, she brings her authentic self. And she brings just a, a love of life and a positivity. So it's such a gift for me to be able to spend time with her whenever it is. And this will be really fun because uh, we'll be able to share a little bit of Michelle with the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Michelle's a dual threat human. She's an incredible athlete, but she's also an incredible musician. And I know that Steinbeck is her home right now. And she does a lot to contribute to her local commu uh, community as well. Uh, so Michelle, let's just talk. We'll start wherever you want to start, but I want to hear a little about you and a little about your story. When I share my story, I often start with the present so people kind of know where okay. where I've I ended up it. or yeah. what I'm doing yeah. now because I don't always get to the yeah. present in my story. And every year that I live, the beginning of the story is farther back. Oh, so, uh, yeah, you know, it is, takes longer to get to now. I think that happens to most yeah. of us. I've been married for almost 24 years now. And I have twin boys and mm -hmm. I've done a lot of coaching of volleyball. Volleyball, of course, was my sport. And I work in radio now. I do a morning show, which was never my life's plan, but I've been doing morning show radio on Golden West out in Steinbeck for 23 years. Started in the flood of 97. Mm. So that was literally getting thrown into the water, like full on when I started that career. And I graduated from the School of Music with a piano performance degree, which sometimes has gotten overshadowed with the volleyball <laughs> side of my life. But also very challenging, especially performance degree. Yeah. I don't think people understand <laughs> that, first of all, when you go into the faculty of music, they kind of choose whether they think you're, you know, you're capable of doing right. a performance degree. Like, it's yes. not like you choose, I think I'll do performance. They're like, wow, <laughs> she's good enough to do performance. So after your second year, yeah. you audition to exactly. get into that line of work. And yeah. it's difficult to mm. be chosen for that mm. and then very demanding. So yeah. you are right. That does get overshadowed because <laughs> that is huge. 
Well, and it's interesting because people think music and sports, if you think of a musician and then you think of an athlete, uh, a lot of people have, you know, I think they, without even being asked the question, they would think, well, that's really two very different fields. You know, a musician would be calm and very refined and an athlete's like sweaty and wanting to kill the opponent and all those kind of things. And well, there's quite a lot of competitive musicians and you need to be, and the passion it takes to succeed in one is absolutely the same as the passion it takes mm. to succeed in another, which is perhaps why many said you can't do both. So, which is exactly why I decided to do both for sure, because they said I couldn't. But, yeah, um, exactly. And mm. that is the type of person we're talking to right here, people. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. So, so, so that's sort of where I, I, um, I do my morning show and I teach about sort of, depending on the year, 17 to 20 students every year. Um, because I can't live without music and I've been uh, coaching sort of straight since my boys were 11 and done high school and club as a coach of boys volleyball and that's where we have come now so there you go and uh, 96 Olympics is where I retired after you know that's after that is when I retired from my sport and uh, after the Olympics you know I think Adrian the most popular question I was asked coming from a small town and being five foot six. I think people were a little bit enamored with the question of how did you do it? Do five that? foot six in the sport of volleyball. Mm -hmm. For people that might not understand that, uh, that does not usually happen. I actually had the privilege of working with Volleyball Canada for a number of years. And now in volleyball, they have a position called the libero, mm -hmm. where that's someone who is um, a defensive specialist. They don't play any front row and they look very different than the rest of the team who's very tall. Now, back when you played, they did not even have the libero position. No. So people probably, when you traveled internationally, did not realize you were part of that team, I imagine, right. at times. <laughs> yeah, well, I will quote Mike Burchuk, who coached, okay. who coached uh, me at the Olympics. Yes. And he's, he has since said... Um, you know, there were other girls that were five foot six at the Olympics, but they mostly kept score and called the lines. So, and that is Mike's way of complimenting my participation mm. in the Olympics. And I really do appreciate that because I know he means that and he's um, appreciative of the fact that that, that happened for, for me and for our team. But, um, and, and even the fact back in the day, it's even a little bit different now. The world has gotten smaller, I think. And even now there's more opportunity for rural athletes, but it's still a challenge. Um, but even back in the day, especially back in the day, you know, if you were from outside of the perimeter of Winnipeg, um, the challenge of making it in sport was even increasingly higher than it is now. Now we, we see these amazing athletes coming out of all corners of Manitoba, which I love. Um, and we have to keep really celebrating, you know, the ruralness of our province because it's huge. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, I started playing volleyball, honestly, Adrian, uh, because um, I have a big sister. Her name is Candice. Oh. And I thought she was the best thing since sliced bread. She's three years older than me. I thought she was an amazing athlete. She was an amazing singer. She was amazing at everything. She was beautiful. Um, she had dark hair and beautiful mm -hmm. brown eyes. I have blonde hair and blue eyes like a good Mennonite <laughs> girl should, maybe. Um, but I wanted to really be like her, and she played volleyball. And when we made the team back in the day when I played junior high volleyball, there was no McDonald's in Steinbeck. So if we made the grade seven and eight girls team, this is such a small town story. If we made the team, we'd go to McDonald's uh, after the tournament in Portage La Prairie. So wow. if you hail from any of those places. That uh, is a pretty big deal then. It's a big deal. I can see why you were motivated. It's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. But tell me, because I think that is true. You were five foot six. I imagine you had a different path than other people who may have been highly sought after as you kind of climbed and made teams. How did Michelle Swatsky make it? 
Okay, so uh, I guess my first sort of step into the world of, re uh, I will say real volleyball, not to downplay the yeah. mighty knights out of Steinbeck <laughs> in grade seven, um, but to make it sort of provincial team, right, would have been sort of, or to play club and okay. then provincial team would have been sort of making it when you're young. So in grade nine, there was a, a woman named Shannon Ormiston was her name then. She's Shannon Kaler now. She came out of the Winnipeg system. She had played at U of M. She herself was from Flin Flon originally, but... Mm had come out of playing volleyball for the University of Manitoba, big time. So she became our phys ed teacher at the Steinbeck Regional at our high school. I was still in the junior high. And I guess she had seen me play and she said I should try out for this, you know, provincial team. And I was like, you're crazy. Like Winnipeg girls make that team. Tall Winnipeg girls, not small rural girls. And she just said, I just think you have potential. I think you could do it. And I think you should go try out. So I was petrified. And, you know, I ended up um, making a long sort of three-year story short. I tried out for three provincial teams. And every year proceeded to be cut for the same reasons. You're mm. too small and you're not good enough. And mostly you're too small, right? And, uh, you, you know, you have some athletic ability, but really you're really small. <laughs> and I had never played club. I, there were so few club teams then. Mm -hmm. Now there's Very hundreds. It's so different so there were when I got to grade 11 my little double a school now Steinbeck's a big school but then we were a double a school we won provincials I was on a team in grade 11 on a varsity team with five incredible grade 12 athletes mm. and it was our year we won it we won the banner you know mm. albeit the double a banner but still we won the banner and I was this one of the setters on the team and um and so uh, I wanted to play club desperately that year Having been cut from provincial teams, no one was asking me to play. There were four provincial teams in the whole province, three in Winnipeg. U of M had one to groom players for their school. U of W had the other. Um, uh, you know, a, a gentleman named Vic Lowen was well-known in the volleyball world. He did another club team, was sort of the other all-stars that didn't make those two teams. You know, you see the process mm -hmm. here. And if you didn't get invited to play on those three teams, well, you were almost basically out of luck. And there was one other coach, Steve Densmore is his name. He's still coaching today, if you can believe it. Um, he's amazing, dude. Uh, he had a team, a club team, and he was at the AA Provincials. And he asked me to play club for his team. Mm -hmm. I was over the moon. And then he announced to me that the location of his club team was in Verdun. Verdun. I live in Steinbeck. Four hours between the two. Four-hour drive from Steinbeck to Verdun. So I asked my parents and, in, and, and introduced to you the heroes of my life, um, John and Adina Sawatsky. And I looked at my parents wow. and I said, can I please, please play? It's the only place that will take me. Wow. And um, it took my dad probably 30 seconds to look at me and say, you know what? This is your dream. We'll drive you there. So twice a week, we, wow. we practiced, we would Tuesday, we'd leave at four o'clock. We'd practice sort of what, seven or eight o'clock till 10 at night. And then we would drive home through the night, literally. And, um, and then on Friday we'd go again and we could practice sort of Friday and then twice on Saturday. So uh, many weeks we got four practices in, in a week. Um, and you know, with a setter that lived sort of four hours away and, um, my parents did that without blinking and, and there are some fortunate things. I'm the youngest of four kids, so they didn't have anyone else to look after or drag <laughs> along. So I fully acknowledge that, but that was the, really the start for me. That was the start of making it because I got into the club volleyball world and I played beyond high school, um, beyond the high school season. There's a lot of people who aren't in sport that might not understand that story. They'd be like, why are her parents driving? For me, I teared up when I heard it. <laughs> 
what was the value to you? What did that mean for you that your parents did that? Like, what did that give you? You know, why, why would your parents want to do that? And why would you do the exact same thing for your children? Yeah. You know, it's, it's just an incredible, it's an incredible moment in my history that they said yes to that, even just the gas money, Never mind the time mm-hmm. and the sacrifice of that. You know, that means the world to me. It means way more to me now that I'm a parent, actually, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I think it's a great statement to the parents that I have that maybe even at the time I wasn't that surprised they said yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and for me, too, it shows how much that was in your heart. Yeah. Like for you as a kid to want to make that four-hour drive <laughs> and to do it you know, with a smile on your face because you were going to play on this club team and they wanted you. Mm-hmm. Um, you someone know. wanted me. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that is... But you, someone wanted you and you wanted it. Yeah. In some ways, that's the blessing of, of having disadvantages in sport and in life because you, you want it so much more and you have to fight like a dog to get it. And you have to go anywhere. I would have gone anywhere um, mm-hmm. to do it. And I knew and, and, and bless Steve's soul that he lived in, in Verdon and he knew what he was doing. He was an incredible mm-hmm. coach still is. Um, and, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it is amazing to me still that my parents ever did that. And it mm-hmm. is hard to talk about without getting emotional, how special they were, mm-hmm. how they were completely not worried about any of their own things. They just gave it all up and did what I needed them to do for me. Mm. And so if you can believe it, the third provincial team I tried out for was after that club season. And I got cut on the second day of that week long tryout of that provincial team. And on the day that I got cut from that provincial team, I had decided to quit volleyball and I got on my phone and I called my parents, well, probably the pay phone because there were no cell phones (laughs) then. And I told my parents and all I remember is the overwhelming feeling of I'm so sorry, but it didn't work. Like you did all of that for me, and I now I still didn't make it, mm-hmm. you know, and the disappointment, and and I know now that they weren't disappointed in me; they were so disappointed for me. But the story doesn't end there, you know. You'd think it might have, and I had intended it to at that moment. <laughs> I was really done with the sport yeah. of volleyball, yeah. and I was really done with being a girl that stopped growing in grade eight. But um, <laughs> my the coach actually who had who had cut me that year, ironically, and that's how life goes sometimes. And sometimes Mm. luck or fate or God or however you believe Mm -hmm. um, has to step in. I believe it was God's plan for me because both the setters on that team uh, quit within a week and they were pretty desperate. The coach was absolutely Mm. desperate for a setter. And I really was really mad when he called and I said, you know what? I wanted to say, you can't have me now. No, no, no. You said I would never be good enough. And I'm still the same height, you know, as I was three weeks ago. Like, you know, but I didn't say any of those things. Honestly, I didn't even ask my parents. I just said, yeah, I'll play. I'll play. I'll totally play. And I had a whole summer of uh, Bible camp. I was going to counsel at Bible camp all summer. I called them like within a day. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be there tomorrow, but I won't be. I'm going to Winnipeg to play volleyball. And I moved into the city and we practiced six hours a day. I was 16 years old and it was a different time then, but provincial team was really serious, you know, mm. and not that it's not serious now. And, and we're excited about our provincial team programs and, and all that. But, you know, I played that provincial team year and that was my foot in the door. And I just knew two things. No, I knew, well, one thing I knew was I was never going to grow anymore. So I knew that mm. if my heart and my head weren't stronger and willing to work harder than everybody else in the game, I would never make it. I was told that so many times. You're just not tall enough to do this. You can't do this. And, you know, this was my opportunity. It's interesting, too, as you say that, you can tell how much, 
how much your heart was still in it when you made that decision that quickly. Right. And (laughs) so although you walked away, you know, you really, you weren't ready to walk away. Mm -hmm. And I think of so many athletes that are going along the path and they receive this kind of information are told repeatedly that, that they don't fit the typical, you know, shape or size that they're looking for. And I don't know if we do a good job of valuing that other piece, the heart piece, Mm -hmm. how invested they are. We just, you look for these other characteristics and it's, it's unfortunate, but I'm, I'm so thankful and everyone's (laughs) thankful that you had the opportunity to, you know, get reinvolved in the sport because Mm -hmm. obviously you weren't done with that sport yet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Unbelievable. What you just said too, that you're going to have to be like, you have to use your head and your heart, the assets that you have, they're intangible that people can't see that you knew would be of value to you. Mm -hmm. How did that shape you as a person? How does that stuff still kind of go through you or go through you as a mom you know you've had these two boys to raise who are very involved in sport because you started with the end so I know you have them yeah yeah you have them I do have them them, you said yeah Um, yeah they're very much involved in volleyball of course we always told them it didn't have to be volleyball but you know I I think that the that the heart and head thing it's been it's been presented to me in a different way as I've you know Mm -hmm. um, listened to more people like you uh, sports psychologists and those and and, and different ways of wording things Um, but I think um, controllables and things you can't control. You know, you can talk to a lot of athletes, high level athletes that have kind of gotten a handle on that. And I think is why they've succeeded. I didn't think I, I don't, I didn't think of it in that way then like, Oh, I'm going to do something with what I can control, but that's what I did mm-hmm. because I had no other choice. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice. I was in survival mode. I was in survival mode for so much of my volleyball career. I had to survive some of some athletes that were and not that the path wasn't hard for them, especially the ones that made it all the way to the Olympics with me. The path was hard for all of us. Mm-hmm. It was a journey for all of us. You don't get to that level without it getting hard at some point. Because even if you're six foot four at that level, you're still just average, you know, yeah, uh, especially compared to the world. And especially in the sport of volleyball. Yeah. Yeah. But finding what you can control in your life is massive. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the things I often have said is that I decided to be the best that I could be and to stop trying to be better than anybody else. Be the best you can be is such a common phrase, and it's a good one. It's good. I I would never throw it out, but you have to understand what it means. Mm -hmm. It has never, ever in the history of that saying ever meant to be better than anyone else. But that's why why it's such a good saying. Mm -hmm. Be the best you can be, and we can always accomplish that. No one can tell us we can't do that because it's about us. It's in us that we are trying to conquer ourselves. And, and that's so much about the human inside and becoming who we want to be in that situation, um, which is, is, can be life-changing and was for me in that moment. And when I went to university and I was told I was small again, but I could play at U of M, uh, the only school that recruited me in the universe, you know, all my provincial team friends were, oh, oh, who talked to you? Oh, USC. Okay. So California wants you, you know? Yeah. So yeah. who of the 10 schools are you going to choose? My lovely friend who's amazing at volleyball, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I didn't have that opportunity or that challenge. University mm-hmm. of Manitoba, they had a school of music and they had a coach who said, well, you can play, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. but if you want to play, you're going to have individual practices three a week, two hours each morning. And because you're so small, you better be perfect. So we're going to set thousands and thousands of volleyballs. And as tough as Ken Bentley ever was on me at the University of Manitoba, and he's still there, man, the guy came to the gym with me three mornings a week, tossed me the ball, thousands and thousands and thousands. He did not settle for, he said, there's a brick. If you hit it a thousand times, then you can leave, you know, um, sacrificed first classes of the day often. Cause I never was at a thousand yet. You know, um, those, that kind of mentality 
was just what I felt I had to do because I knew that that was the only way I would be the best that I could be. There was no magic to that. There was, it was hard, hard work and that's mm. it. And doing more than what I thought anyone else was doing like in Canada, yeah, like anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of desperate to do more and was almost afraid not to do more. I think that's what drove me. I, I couldn't not do more than everybody else. And in my time at university, we started to win and we started to, you know, we had, we won three national championships and, you know, started to get recognized as sort of the leader of this group. But I never could stop going to the gym all those mornings. Like, I don't know. I should ask mm -hmm. Ken, like, did I drag him there in my fifth year? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, please, we have to go set some more volleyballs. We have to go. And I never stopped doing all those individuals ever, ever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they could have named me any kind of award and I never would have stopped going to the gym at six in the morning, minus 40 in Manitoba when no one else was watching. Cause I absolutely to the bottom of my core knew that was why we were winning, knew that was why I could help my team mm. be the best that they could be in. And then I didn't assume I would make the national team, but I kind of really felt like I was in line to be invited to try out for the national team next. And, you know, I had a meeting with, with the coach of that team and, and really thought he was just going to give me this letter of invitation, you know, and, and he was inviting me to the tryout, which was three weeks long. That was back in, you know, history, 1993. And, and he met with me, but his words to me were, and now, but having been a coach, I can see, I actually can see the, the words sort of, when I say them, maybe someone's like, Oh, that's brutal. They weren't really, he was being honest with me. Mm -hmm. And as a coach, I think it's kind and it's good to be honest with athletes mm -hmm. and it hurts, but it hurts more if you're not honest and then you find out later in a different way. And the inevitable is the inevitable. And yeah. he said to me, he said, you know, I, I guess I, I'm going to invite you to this tryout only because I feel like I owe it to you. I owe you this tryout. So I want you to come. And I was like, but he goes, but at five foot six, like you'll just never play international volleyball. Like your, like your height compared to the girls that play international volleyball, it's just not even close. Mm -hmm. You will never play, you mm -hmm. know, but I owe you this tryout. And I said, I, I just said, well, then don't give it to me. I don't want to try out because you owe it to me. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're saying I'll never play and you're picking the team, you know, I mean, I, I know I only got a music yeah. degree. It wasn't like medical or anything, but I really was not that not smart to yeah. know that, that, you know, the math behind that was yeah. pretty obvious, right? Like. <laughs> Maybe don't waste three weeks of your life trying out for a team you already know you're not going to make. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, you know, village, the village, like, you know, Ken said to me, like, how are you not trying out for this team? How are you not trying out? And I mm -hmm. sort of explained why. And he said, you got to go for three weeks. Just go, just go have the time of your life. Like go and mm -hmm. go and play with the best female volleyball players in Canada for three weeks. And then if it's over, what a great ending to your career, right? You've got some championships, you've got some awards, and you've had a tryout with the national team. You can tell your kids one day you made it that far. And I thought, and you know why I went to that tryout? I went because of the time he put in. And I said, you know what, I'll go for you. That's fine. But I really went to the national team to try out with the full intention of not trying and not caring because it was just far too painful at that point. Yeah, I don't need someone to tell me again that I'm not good enough and that I'm too small. And I think I'm good. I can wrap it up. You know, I wasn't 12, you know, I was 23. I had a university degree and there were other things I could do. And so I went and after the first day of that tryout, 
which went awesome by the way, because I had no pressure on myself. <laughs> no one expected a thing from me. Yeah. I knew the outcome already. When you know the outcome, right? You watch, you can even watch a scary movie. If you know the outcome, you're not even scared because you know <laughs> how it's going to end, right? I knew how that trial was going to end. I figured I had been told. Mm-hmm. And then the second day I walked in and what struck me was that every girl in that gym I had played with or competed against for the last five years and, and beaten most of them most of the time, mm-hmm. you know, and I won't, I, I you know, I, 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 Jennifer Byrell says this in her, when she motivates so many people, cause she's mm-hmm. so amazing. And she said for her, a big saying was, why not me? And I don't know that I said those words exactly, but I knew I could make the team. I looked around that gym and I said, how can I not make this team? How can I not? And I was really mad at myself for a moment because I went, dang it. Now you have to try hard. Hmm. Now you have to invest and now you have to risk everything. And at the end of this three weeks, you're going to be really, really sad (laughs) because you're really not because the same guy's picking the team, (laughs) you know? So I tried again. I don't know exactly why, but at the end of the three weeks, I made the team and that was really great, but I was always on a conditional basis and there were taller girls that were going to come take my place along the way. And sort of about a year later, we were on a tour in the U S and, and uh, we were just getting killed. It was like a five city tour. USA women had all this money and they flew us from city to city to play these games. And <laughs> it's like a corona demonstration. It yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Just amazing. <laughs> Watch you know? us pound this yes, team exactly. that we know are better than. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I don't know if we were, what city we were in. And, you know, we were maybe the third match in or something. I can't remember. But we were down 8-1 in the third. I remember that. And the coach sort of looked at me. My job was to take notes. I was sitting on the bench for a good eight months, you know, solid. And I thought really my job on the team would be to train and just train and help the other girls get better. And I was actually okay with that. I had no, I had no complaints. I did not have a negative feeling about being there. That was my role. It was my first year on the team. Like I had no other expectations and he put his hand on my knee pad. I'll never forget it. And he goes, well, we're down eight to one. Do you want to go in? (laughs) I almost pooped my pants. Like I was like, what? Uh, I guess yeah, I think yes. yes. I think yes is, that, is the right answer. Is that an offer? Am I supposed like, to this, answer that? Is this a theoretical or, question? Yeah, you know, yeah. Or like, we really talking in reality Yeah, is right this now? really happening? Yeah. yeah. So I went in and, and we came back. We, I think we won the third and won the fourth and then lost the fifth, 16-14. And, and I played the next night. And, and somewhere in my time on the national team, we beat USA a couple times. And um, one was on home soil. It was so cool. And uh, honestly... Um, we got back to, to our, to Winnipeg and, and just, yeah. So he kind of had a meeting with me and he said, you know, I want to let the whole team know first or whatever, but I think you're going to be our starting setter. And I think we need to have you play more on the team. And, and, um, and I, uh, first thing I did, uh, I didn't tell anyone cause he told me not to tell anyone except I called my mom and dad. Mm. I'll cry forever when I talk about that moment. Yeah. Cause I said, guess what? you're going to get to watch me play on the national team. And I was never supposed to do that. And so that was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, so that's, that was really the, that was really the moment I made the national team, I think, because that was the sort of the moment where he didn't tell me anymore that someone else was going to take my place or he actually maybe even said that the team needed me. (laughs) And, um, so, uh, but what a beautiful moment. And yeah, the struggle and challenges along the way, everyone sees that moment and they want it. But the only reason why it felt that way and why many years later it still feels that way is because of the path there. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. And the other thing that was going through my head as you spoke was that 
um, we really never know the outcome of our lives. And it's really about, it's not about like making or not making it. It's about being all in on the way there, Mm -hmm. you know, and just investing in yourself and letting yourself see what you can make happen. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's, um, that's what's so beautiful, but what, what an incredible story. What an an incredible story. And I know in sport, there's so many kids that are getting that, that message right now that they're not the right size or they're Mm -hmm. not whatever. And it's really amazing that you were able to almost compartmentalize that. You heard that, mm-hmm. but they also didn't know a lot of parts of you. And what's really interesting too is when your coach, Ken Bentley, encouraged you to that tryout. Yeah. My bet is that he knew you and he knew it was in your heart. And he was almost tricking you because <laughs> he knew that if you made it there, mm-hmm. um, he knew that you had a chance to make that team. Right. Because he knew that you wouldn't be able to not try And he also, from being with you in the gym, he probably knew you had an asset or contribution that no one was aware of yet. You were his secret weapon. (laughs) And you do get to know your athletes, you know, Mm -hmm. and you you get to know those intangibles. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. how, you know, there are athletes that I see now still, you know, that I go, I know you all think he shouldn't be starting. Even guys I've played against, even in my coaching now, Mm -hmm. I think, you know what people are saying, and I hear people, why would that coach start that kid? Why is he still starting Mm -hmm. for that team? That boy on the bench, he's taller and he's whatever. And I'm like, but do you know that kid? Mm -hmm. Do you know what happens all around that kid? Yes. Right? Yeah, he might not be the best hitter, but what happens all around him? Look who's around him, yeah. right? He makes the whole team better when he's on the court for whatever yeah. reason, right? Yeah. He brings people together. He brings out the whatever. It, it's better when he's out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and, and I think that, you know, that is true. And that became sort of the the battle that I had to fight, right? And and to just to keep proving. And some people now, though, when I've shared my story many times to, with young groups, even some people have said, be careful, don't encourage this. You know, you don't want to encourage small kids too much and tell them if they do this, they can do it and then they'll make it. And I often say when I've shared my story with them and I often say, you know, I can't tell you that if you go into the gym and you set 10,000 volleyballs a day and you're five foot two, that you're going to make the national team because we can't control that, mm-hmm. that we don't know. But if you decide what you want to do. And then you go into the gym and you do extra and you give everything you have and you still don't make it. You'll never wonder what would have happened if I had given more and all that you learn in the process and the sweat and the tears of being in that gym every day, even if you never make it will create who you are. It will change who you are inside. If you're willing to sacrifice enough. And if you know that the end is never guaranteed, because I've never told anyone, if you do what I did, you'll make it. As, as you've said, it's okay if you don't. Yeah. And what I love too, you said, that's the battle I had to fight. Yeah. And so your piece was that I was shorter than the person, so I had to fight, you know. But yeah. everyone, I think that's what's so beautiful about sport, right? Everyone has a battle they have to fight if they're going to become their best. Yeah. It might be that they have to work on their stick handling more than someone else. It might be that they tend to get scared under pressure and they, you know, but everyone has their battle they have to fight. And Mm -hmm. hopefully we all have the courage to be honest enough for ourselves to see what that battle is with clarity. Mm -hmm. And rather than judge ourselves for it, see that as an incredible opportunity to get better. Yeah. Because that's a gap that we have and that's something that we need to do better. I think another thing I've learned too in my sporting world, no, and I and I and I would say absolutely like the the end the end to my story, getting to play at the Olympics and you know, being on the court when we beat Peru and you know, being being in that group, that group of Canadian women, that precious group that has won at the Olympics, has won something, has won a match, won a game, you know. Um, those that ending is great. But what I see as real value in club teams that I coached or volleyball teams that I coached that haven't won in the end. Some of them have, some of them haven't. Um, I have learned 
that I love to share with, with young athletes is even if you give everything you have, and let's say 16U club is your, is the best volleyball you ever played and it's the best ever. Why is it bad that that's your Olympics? Maybe that's the, that's the best it ever got. Just cherish those memories forever because you had those memories because you were in, you were in both feet. You jumped into that season and you gave everything you had and you risked being hurt and you risked it all. And maybe that's the best. And maybe, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the, the ending isn't what, why we do what we do. It can't yeah. be because we, so few people reach that magical ending and yet the magic's in the journey. Then you don't have to worry about the end. And that takes the anxiety out of the result. You control what you pour in. Mm-hmm. And then you find out, you know, and then if you find out, oh, I was pouring so much of myself into this sport, but that's not really my thing. But now I've learned how to pour myself into something. And when you find your thing and then you pour yourself into that, it's an incredible thing. Especially right now where sport is not happening in the mm-hmm. same way because of COVID. I think sometimes people question why we need to get that conversation on the table and why it's of value and importance to bring it back. But what you've just said, I think talks about the profound impact that sport can have on athletes' lives and the importance of bringing it to the table and having a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. When you think about, because you played sport uh, a while ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when you, and so there's distance from it. Do you still reflect back and think it had a profound impact on your life today? 100%. Any challenge I face now, what I found was interesting was when I became a mom of twins was my most challenging, I think my most challenging moments of my life. Those first three months of being a mom Mm. was crazy. Um, The sacrifice was crazy. Um, The loss of identity was crazy. Um, The, all the stuff you had to do to actually keep human beings alive and nobody cared. Uh, Lots Mm. of people cared, but you know what I mean? Mm. When you're setting a volleyball on a national team, there's newspapers there. There's TV cameras there. The city you grew up in, they all want to know about it. And I love that. That's an incredible thing. I would never want it to be any different. And I don't think it should be any different. But when I, at two in the morning, you're, you're waking up with your crying babies, that doesn't seem as valued. But, you ha- but what I, I just remembered that it's the stuff that you do when no one's watching that makes you the person you are and that gets you to that finish line. That's what it is. When I was in the gym setting thousands of volleyballs, sometimes getting yelled at for really not being very good and feeling like garbage at six in the morning, the last place I wanted to be was in that gym at that moment. That's what, why everything else transpired how it did. And when you look at your kids, let's say, and I use it as only my example, but when I look at the, being, a, being this new mom and feeling like nobody cared, in the middle of the night, the last thing I wanted to do was wake up again to the screaming noise of their voices and to watch them become these young men that are, you, you know, that you literally carried. Is there more of a valuable journey than that? Well, yeah, there's many valuable journeys and many just as valuable that's why when I think about finding heroes in our midst, it doesn't even seem like a daunting task because, and I've thought of that often in my life, how incredibly blessed I am to maybe have Olympics attached to my name, but I have met so many mothers and fathers and kids and young athletes who will never go to the Olympics, but they are heroes because I have been to the Olympics and then I've lived real life. 
And what I've done since and in those realms has seemed far more heroic to me than anything I ever did on a wooden court. But it taught me how I want to approach everything I do in my life and not to expect to get attention for all the hard work in between. You have to get your reward from knowing what you poured into your journey. And even if no one sees it, that's why when I watch my boys do anything, I, I cry almost every time because, because that's my heart and soul. That's so profound and, <laughs> and so beautiful. And what an unbelievable story and, uh, and connection to, to daily life. And I absolutely love it. It's what, it's what you do when no one, one's watching. And so when you see those incredible young men and who they've become, it's because of those moments where you had the hard conversations, you got up in the middle of the night and <laughs> You know, you invested in those moments and that's why they are who they are. They don't know that yet, but one day they'll maybe, understand. Maybe, One yeah. day they, they, uh, they know parts of it probably, <laughs> yeah. um, but one day they'll understand the sleepless nights perhaps if they choose to, to yeah. have children of their own. The last thing I want to ask you, so life's about moments and you've told us about some incredible moments already. Mm-hmm. Is there one or two moments that you remember from your, your, your sport career or your life where you're like, wow, that's a moment I will never forget? You've already told us about some of them. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there any other moments that... For sure, playing. Um, my Sort of my two moments from the Olympics would be uh, walking into our first match. Mm-hmm. We were playing Cuba. They're the best team in the world. They'd won in 88 and 92 mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and 96. <laughs> they were just <laughs> champions. They had just their most amazing lineup mm-hmm. for so many years. And we were playing them first, Lucky Canada. And... Um, and I remember we warmed up in this gym called the Omni Coliseum and it sits like 25,000 people. I don't think there were that many people in there, but, um, and we, and you warm up at the Olympics. It's so funny because you warm up and you have your big tracksuit off as you're warming up, you get all sweaty and then they force you to put your tracksuit back on um, <laughs> because you're supposed to look nice for the TVs. And, um, and they sort of heard you off the court once you're all warmed up. They put you in the corner because they want to parade you on to the Olympic music, you know? Mm. And, um, and so I was, you know, right in the front of the line because the shortest to tallest, you know, (laughs) and the Olympic music starts to play whatever it is, you know it when you hear it. And, and the announcer sort of said, and now the Olympic team from Canada, you know, and I'm standing next to the 12 best volleyball players, first of all, in the world. And I'm about to run into this, to this crazy reality of mine of the Olympic games. And one of the reasons I'm so glad that's one of my best memories is because I didn't play one minute of that match. I was on the bench for Canada. And uh, from the village I had behind me, from my dad thinking I was amazing, in my opinion, doing nothing. <laughs> mm. um, that, was a, that was one of the, my greatest moments, I think. One of my best memories in sport was just running onto that announcement. There was nothing like it. Um, and then probably because halfway through the Olympics or so I started to play and um, our old lineup was sort of back on in our final match against Peru. And we hadn't won a game um, in the history of women's volleyball. They'd never won a game at the Olympics. Um, And um, we were playing Peru and uh, we needed to beat them to finish ninth. And so our good old lineup was on sort of the more the one that we qualified with. And uh, we played Peru and we went five games with them and, and, um, and we won. We won in five. I don't know, was it 15, 12 or something in the fifth? And, and I came down and I was in the front row. I remember I was in the front row. And that's where I was the most, the biggest liability for every coach that ever coached me because I was so mm. small. And um, I don't know. I just, I just remember coming down from the block and I think the left side hitter hit it out and, and it was over. And um, I just remember thinking about how in that moment, 
I had just done something that most people in this sport had said I would never do. And I just would never do it. They didn't say 60, 40, 90, 10, you know, and I knew actually that I would not play volleyball again. <laughs> I came down from that block and I think, I don't even know how quickly I took my shoes off, but um, that would be maybe one of my best playing memories ever. Um, and yeah, just having accomplished that with this amazing group of women and just, we, we trained so hard on that team and we thrived in a challenging environment of trying to be a national team in a sport that hasn't succeeded for Canadian women. Mm-hmm. And we did that together. And, and I was still five foot six and I was still from Steinbeck, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's not really supposed to go together. So I've always hoped that um, that story uh, gives people the ability to dream and to not be afraid to dream. And those would be maybe my very, my very best memories. I have now lots of memories coaching and things that are special, but um, if we, if we limit it just to playing, um, that would have to be it. Yeah. And making a little history, right? (laughs) You are making history. And I, I love the pride in your voice when you talked about what, what you accomplished together. I sense that it wasn't even a, a personal sense of accomplishment, but you, the hard work of your teammates Mm -hmm. and, um, that meant a lot to you. One other moment I want to talk about, and then we'll wrap it up. Although I have the feeling we could talk all day <laughs> because I'm just loving this conversation and I'm so thankful to have been a part of it. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm so excited we're doing this podcast series because there's so much I want to share with the world. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's so beautiful to learn about people's journeys and their stories. But I want to talk to you about that. Uh, you, you mentioned that your, your dad felt you were amazing. And I know that you, uh, you were the starter when you helped the team qualify and then you became not the starter. And I know that your parents were hardworking people that didn't have millions of dollars and sacrificed a lot so they could come and watch you play at the games and you weren't playing. And there was a moment where your dad came and chatted with you. And I I want you to talk about that because I think that's important for a lot of sport parents out there. And it's uh, sometimes difficult as a parent to respond and react in the way your dad did. So Mm -hmm. I, I want you to tell me about that moment. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'd appreciate everyone having the opportunity to hear about it. <laughs> you know, it was amazing. And I, I told you my most, well, it's one of my most special moments of running on to play. And, and the fact that I didn't play one minute of that game. And that was my role really for the Olympics. Um, I had been told that I would, you know, be taking notes and, and be on the bench uh, for our team. And so we played our first match and it was over. And of course, my dad, who took out a loan to get my whole family there mm. to watch me play. I have two sisters and a brother and he paid for everyone to come. And um, the first match was over and we were allowed to walk over and talk to our families. And he had a video camera in one hand and I and a, regular camera and the other I don't know that he ever actually watched the Olympics <laughs> um until later but um and they he came running down the, the bleachers when I came over and I, I was I was feeling good I had decided to enjoy the Olympics and embrace it and um and he came down and all he kept saying was you were awesome you were so awesome and I looked at him and I remember the first thing I said was dad I didn't do anything and he said to me, he said, for 15 years, I've watched you sacrifice everything else in your life to be a part of what you were. And every play that your teammates made, every, a part of every play that they made was because of you, because of what you've done. And that's all he said. He said, there was no ifs, ands, or buts. 
He didn't say the coach should have played you. He didn't say what were they thinking. He didn't say you would have won if you were on the court. He didn't say, you know, you're better than that other girl. He didn't say any of that because I don't think it even entered his mind. And he was right. Every single girl on that team was awesome, no matter what role you were given. And I say that to athletes as a coach, but my dad absolutely never gave me an option but to love where I was and to be proud of what I had done. And I think my dad forever has imprinted on my mind that um, he didn't see any of that. He didn't even think about it. I was just awesome. And I think when athletes are a part of something, you have to always remember the contribution you've made because you always will. Sounds like a pretty incredible guy and the apple doesn't usually fall too far from the tree <laughs> because you're a pretty incredible person for mm -hmm. yourself. And for sure it was woven throughout the, the story was the impact your parents had on you. Mm -hmm. And one thing that um, I thought about is your parents were driving four hours to bird bird and back and forth. I bet you they also had a smile on their face and there was nothing else that they'd <laughs> rather be doing in that moment. And I think it's unbelievable that he wanted the whole family there mm -hmm. because it was a, it was a family experience and it very much is a family experience when, you know, Cal Botterill often says there's no such thing as an individual sport yeah. and you went to the Olympics, but your entire family was part of that journey and that became very evident. Thank you, Michelle. I think that anyone listening to this understands why you are a hero <laughs> and um, you continue to, to live that way and you definitely embrace and, and live life fully and, we're, we're so thankful to have you in our community in Manitoba, and I'm so privileged to call you a good friend of mine. Oh man, the privilege is all mine. Well, that's my story. I'm beyond thankful that God put me on my path and humbled that it's mine now to share in as many ways as I possibly can. I'm also kind of relieved that my turn is done. And now we get to find so many more heroes in our midst with more incredible stories on the way. Keep your eyes and ears open for our next episode. Ace Burpee will sit in the host's chair while Adrian and I look back at what season one has brought us. No doubt it will be an episode filled with highlights, insights, and inspiration, I'm sure. And we're going to get you pretty excited about all the heroes yet to come. Thanks for listening.